This week on the Guardian Audio Edition. Luke Harding reports from Mali as the French army retake territory from jihadist forces. Peter Bradshaw gives five stars to Steven Spielberg's film, Lincoln. And in this week's audiobook review, we discover the world of Jane Austen's most beloved character, Elizabeth Bennet. To subscribe for free, go to audible.co.uk slash guardianaudio or find us on SoundCloud, Audioboo and in iTunes. The Guardian Audio Edition, a new way to get the whole picture. The Guardian. Hello, this is Music Weekly. I'm Kieran Yates. And I'm Michael Hand, standing in for a sickly Alexis Petridis. This week, super producer turned solo artist Ethan Johns joins the pod. Cat Power, Veronica Falls and Marika Hackman slug it out on Singles Club. Ben Beaumont-Thomas talks to Miguel, plus another album in our Hidden Treasures series. All here on Music Weekly from The Guardian. Hello, Ethan. Hi. <laughs> Welcome to the pod. Thank, Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. It's good. Sorry that Alexis isn't here, so you have to make do with Michael Hand. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> but, you know, I, I can bring discussion of the big news of the week, although at this stage, recording Music Weekly, we don't know if it's big news. The news that My Bloody Valentine may or may not release an album this week, delete according to whether it's actually happened by the time this goes out. Um, now, Ethan, as someone inside music... This trend for just springing albums on people suddenly, is it, is it a worthwhile thing to do? Presumably it can only work for an act that has that kind of groundswell of interest anyway, because yeah. if you don't, you're just putting it out into a vacuum, <laughs> exactly. aren't you? I, I, I thought the, uh, the first one that I was aware of, I thought Jack White or the Raconteurs or one of his bands did it, Yeah, and I thought it was... I thought it was great, and I think it was a it was a statement against the leaking that was going on. I think the the issues that I've been aware of with bands that I've worked with being concerned about sending out promos f- for review is that as soon as you do that, they get posted online and then they're shared, and um, potentially many, many, many thousands of copies of your record are are just given away for free, and, and um, it can be pretty frustrating for a band because you know contrary to popular belief it's very difficult to make money in the music business maybe the slightly uh, cynical aspect of it might have been that it, it might generate a bit of interest because you know no one else has really done it before well, well, well it does i mean these days the sudden in the sudden announcement is a far better way to generate press interest than uh and then hopefully public interest since incredibly the world does not stop with music journalists than the fully thought out campaign like Bowie the other week where mm. you know we got this announcement and the world went berserk mm. what about hip hop Kieran I mean because hip hop albums are always unheard no it always comes a complete surprise to me but that may be a reflection of uh, <laughs> me rather than them well yeah I just thought that, that was quite an interesting point that you just made Ethan about this kind of uh, self-preservation of sorts about illegal downloads because uh, I think that I always have this idea that if you're quite well established already then you, you know there's still areas of making money through you know live shows uh, and those kind of things whereas in hip-hop a lot of the time where it's new artists and mixtapes out I feel like it's a it's a kind of a different ball game because that seems like the only way in which that they're going to make money so if they are getting leaked then that seems like a, a kind of a bigger peril almost um, so I don't, I don't know, it's, it's difficult. I think that kind of the theatre aspect of hip-hop is quite prevalent, really, and I like. I think they enjoy that drama of coming out of nowhere and taking over and suddenly, you know, having this kind of barrage of interest. But then that can work against you because that happened with Prince last week, and I don't think that that track was actually that well-received, was it? What did you think? Well, to be honest, I didn't pay much attention because the last few days I've been completely tied up in Wilco Johnson world, interviewing <laughs> him, writing up an interview with him, so... I'm sorry. Anyway, let, let, let's talk about your, your record then, Ethan. Okay. Um, that's why you're here. <laughs> See across the valley Red moon on the rise Everyone sleeping Gold dust in their eyes Somewhere in the city Where the moon don't shine One more is becoming Slave to the light 
Um, you produce, you engineer, you mix, you drum, you play guitar, you play omnichord, elbow, sorry, ebo, not elbow, <laughs> mandocello, ukulele, dobro, bass, and God knows what else. What can't you do in a studio? Um, and anything that you have to bow uh, tends to be off limits for me. So no, you know, no violins or, or cellos. Sadly, I'd love to be able to, but I can't. And uh, most horn instruments and woodwinds I can't play but anything else I can get a sound out of pretty much and you can work on every single piece of equipment in the studio though only analog ones you say yeah I'm pretty awful with digital equipment um but uh in fact yeah I don't know how to work digital equipment uh, I can work digital reverbs is, is that a <laughs> is, is that was that a policy decision you made or just a function no. of the way that you learned listen I grew up making records when before digital existed right so digital arrived I remember doing a shootout test of the first digital two-track machine in 1980-something or other and going, well, that doesn't sound as good as the quarter-inch machine, so I'm not going to use that because it doesn't sound as good. And then every couple of years, someone will come out with another bit of gear and I do the same thing, and I go, nope, it doesn't sound as good either, so um, there's no reason for me to use it. But to me, the idea of making the leap just is foolish to me. I'll, I'll use whatever tool I need creatively to do the job that's at hand. But I'm very aware of the ergonomics of going digital because it's a little Pandora's box-like to me. If you're presented as an artist with the opportunity to do the things that you can do with Pro Tools, you tend to start using them. It's very difficult. I meet a lot of people now that say, uh, yeah, well, you know, you can you can always use Pro Tools just like you use a tape machine. Yeah, you try it. You know, it's not that easy. <laughs> Um, and it's just a little t- when the pressure's on and you're in the middle of those creative environments and, you, and you, you'll find yourself leaning on those tools way more than you should that's my experience of it so to create an environment that really focuses the artists when you, when you work analogue the way I do you can't rely on the fix-it technology that Pro Tools avoid, that, that provides for you and it just means that you have to get it together as a performer. You have to engage in the process. I think it's really healthy. It is for me. And I think it's really healthy for the artists. Every artist that I've worked with, very few of them ever go back. If they've never worked on analog before, they'll, they love the process because it's so rewarding. And, and it gives the artist that much more of an opportunity to put themselves into the music that they're making. Speaking of artists, you have now made the album of your own. Mm. If not now, then when? Yeah. Why? Uh, I don't really know why, to be honest. I've been asked that question a lot over the last few weeks. I think it's the songs more than it is anything else. It's what I keep coming back to in the end. I was really proud of the songs. The more I sang them for people, the more people connected with them, which was encouraging and... So I sung them for people more, and then I ended up having a lot more fun singing them for people. And it sort of grew out of a natural process of... I've always written songs. I've written songs for 30 years, roughly. Um, it's just something I do. I don't think about it. It's just something I've always done. So was this a collection of songs that you'd written gradually or written with an album in mind? No, no. I mean, like I say, I write all the time. Um, I'm always writing. I wrote a couple of verses on the train on the way up here today. I'm always writing. I'm always playing guitar. So songs are coming you know all the time um so the mixture of material on the record some of it was literally recorded days before it was written days before it was recorded i think i think the oldest song on the record's about four years old so it doesn't actually go that far back because listening to the album there is quite a strong narrative throughout that kind of feels like you're really telling your story so was it that you felt like you suddenly wanted to tell your story now or that that was that's what you'd always wanted to say or you know do you know what I mean I do know what you mean it's very interesting it's really interesting to hear you say that because I think everybody responds to the songs differently I think everyone has their own idea about what the songs are about and what they mean and and so it's very difficult for me to comment on your response to hearing my material and that's one of the things I love about songwriting is that you know it doesn't matter how specific you get (laughs) someone's going to have their own idea about what the song is it's brilliant absolutely genius and if I think some of the great songwriters are really aware of it and they play with it there's a song called Charlie Darwin that the low anthem have written I don't know if you know that song it's just phenomenal because it's polarizing it you could have such extreme points of view about what that song's about it's genius anyway um you've worked in the past with 
well, repeatedly with Ryan Adams and with people like Laura Marling and mm. Ray LaMontagne. So that doesn't come as much as a surprise that a lot of this album, it's kind of folky, kind of country. Is that very much what you think of as your musical homeland, that style of music? I guess so. Again, I, I have really broad taste in music. I listen to a lot of jazz. I listen to a lot of classical music. Uh, I listen to all kinds of, of music. I listen to punk. So, I'd, again, it's not... I don't... I don't feel like I have a specific style. I think that there's quite broad styles on the record, I think. But again, it's difficult for me to judge. When I pick up a guitar, I'm just playing. I don't know what's going to come out. I don't know what style it's going to be. It just is however I'm feeling. It's like that song Morning Blues on the record. You know, I was in a bad mood. I picked up a guitar and I turned it up to 11 and I just started playing. And that's what came out. So I get, that's kind of a country blues thing. I don't, I don't know why. It just was how I was feeling. <laughs> Did any of the artists that you've worked for offer you advice on switching to the other side of the desk? Did you seek any? Sure. Yeah. Well, the producers on the record are artists, a lot of them. Um, you know, Laura helped uh, with a little production. Richard Corson helped with a bit of production. Ryan helped with a bit of production. Jeremy Stacey, uh, he may, he's the drummer in the High Flying Birds. He's actually been a Cheryl Crow's drummer for years. He's a great musician. Um, he helped a lot as well. I mean, I relied a lot on those guys to help me it was really with their encouragement that that it was it was that it should be done you know i think and having artists as producers with you as a producer is it hard to allow yourself to trust their judgments no it was really easy i wanted to treat everybody the way i wanted to be treated which is with you know sort of respect and 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 you know completely openly and i knew i had to let go of everything i couldn't I couldn't produce myself. I don't think I don't think artists can produce themselves, not effectively. It was one of the breakthrough moments for me when I realised that I I had to rely on the people that were around me. How was that process of kind of relinquishing some control? Because I think as a producer, you're so in touch with every nuance of every sound on the record, and mm. then to kind of do that process in a completely different way must be interesting. It was really liberating. Mm. It made it fun. Because I didn't feel like I had to control everything. You know, I was just there as the singer-songwriter, which is primarily what you hope the artists that you're working with are going to be. The more hung up you get about these things, the more precious you get, the more bogged down the creative process gets. You start to second-guess everything. And, you know, the freer you are, the more the inspiration's going to flow, the more alive the work's going to be. Also, I was quite fortunate in that, you know, the, you know, the recording sessions, I would let... I never gave anybody any direction as to what they were going to play with the other musicians on the record. I wanted it to be completely free. But, you know, if we didn't get something, if we didn't get a take that I liked, I, I, we didn't have to use it. So, you know, it wasn't like I was in the studio going, oh, this isn't working, oh, I don't understand it, pulling my hair out. It didn't matter. Just let the guys go, let them go, and I'll do the best I can, and maybe it's going to be amazing. Maybe in three days I'll hear it back and go, whoa, I had no idea it could be like this. This is incredible. Um, but you've got to give things time and space to evolve. And, you know, I mean, this is where the real inspired stuff comes from, I think. You can't control. The best stuff happens when, you, when, you do, when you're not in control, where it's just flowing, you know. What, what, what is the job of a producer? For the benefit of those who just know, OK, band comes into the studio with songs, band exits studio with this finished masterpiece. What's the bit that the producer does in between? The main reason why... I think I've probably stayed in the job as long as I has I have is because it changes every day. You know, different artists are going to require different things. You know, the, if I'm working, I could be working with an artist that that just needs a cheerleader. You know, they've got it all figured out. They, they may maybe occasionally you'll 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 need to pick a take or whatever it is. Or you just you know, I tend to not really do those projects because they're a bit boring. But you know, I'm sure there are a lot of artists out there that that just need someone to go. Yeah, you sound great. Um, and then there are the complete other end of the spectrum would be somebody that needs 
you know, a lot of editing. Someone that needs uh, help with writing even, or, you know, that needs a, a tremendous amount of attention and care. And everything in between. So you never know. It's, it's a fascinating job because I walk into the studio, I don't know how much of a psychologist I need to be that day. You know, you have to be incredibly aware of the mood of the room. Environment's incredibly important. I like to work live, so that's, you know, it's inclusive. I'm often working with a, a room full of people. And everybody's mood is, you know, has an incredible effect on whether or not a performance is, is going well or, or how a track's coming together. So I could be... You know, my brain's going in a thousand different directions. Every five seconds, I'm making a hundred decisions, um, and choosing what to bring up at what point. Uh, is it time for a tea break? <laughs> do we need to listen to what we've just done, or do we need to keep going? Do we need to work on the bass line? Do we need to work on the arrangement of the song? Do we need to cut a different song? Are we in the right key? How's the sound? You know, is, should it be acoustic guitar or mandolin? Or you know, I mean, this, it's any given moment. There's a thousand things going through my mind, and sometimes the answer is just don't say anything. Just let the room roll. It's happening. You know, there's a flow, a creative flow going between all of the people on the room, and you just sit there and you, you kind of watch it <laughs> happen. You know, and and that that's that's the beautiful thing. It's like it's like finely tuning an engine, and that's really what you want. You want your team working at full tilt. And then you just sort of occasionally you might just want to change the direction slightly if you feel it's veering off somewhere it shouldn't go. But sometimes you need to let it. You know, maybe there's a few people in the room that need to go down the wrong path for a couple of days before they really... You know, it's, 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 a, it's a fascinating job. Given that you and your father, Glyn Johns, and your uncle, Andy Johns, um, have worked on more or less every successful rock record of the last 45 years, yeah. um, was it always destined that you were going to end up in the music industry? No, that's something I've been asked a lot as well. I mean, there's no question that there's a DNA thing going on. Glenn and Andy both have very unique sounds and senses of balance. I'm not sure if I do. I think, I think there's an element of the way I present bands sonically that's somehow relative to the way they do. We all have our own fingerprints as far as sound is concerned, but there's something that links the three of us together somehow. I've been enthralled by music I was enthralled by music for so many years before I realised my father was a producer or that I grew up in a musical household. Uh, there's no question that having access to the people I did made a huge difference in, in, in my ability to learn. I mean, I, was, I, my, I had incredible experiences as a child that, we, that some musicians would take them years to have those kind of experiences, watching sessions or even playing on sessions. I mean, I jammed with all kinds of people um, and got lessons from some amazing musicians. But I think I was always going to be in music, and I think I would have found a way to have been in music, whether or not. As anyone who's looked through you know, your discographies of, of your family will know, I'm actually not exaggerating when I say that between you, you've worked on pretty, pretty well every major rock record the last 45 years. Are there any, that, where, when on those occasions where you're together, are there any acts you can think of that, oh, blimey, I wish one of us had done them? <laughs> <laughs> There, there occasionally they'll, I'll hear a record and I'll go, oh, I wish I'd have done that. But I'm not going to tell you what they are because <laughs> that wouldn't be fair. Um, but sure, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, there's, there's, there are artists out there I'd love to work with. Um, but, but, you know, I think being the kind of producer that I am, um, you know, it's, it, it, you have to get asked. You don't go knocking on people's doors. That's the only way it's going to work properly. So um, I'm always glad when they, when they call. <laughs> Time to move on, but stay with us, Ethan, for Singles Club. Two years ago, Miguel looked in danger of becoming an also-ran with the breakdown of his label, Jive Records. But his first album became a word-of-mouth favourite, and Adorn, the lead single from his second LP, led him to work with Alicia Keys and Beyonce. As he embarks on a UK tour, he talks to Ben Beaumont-Thomas. Hello. I am a subconscious. Supreme. 
So I'm here with Miguel just as he begins his UK tour and rather than talk about the usual stuff of uh, his life story and the success of Adorn and his album, we're going to talk instead about the tracks that have really influenced him, shaped his stagecraft, his songwriting and so on. So Miguel, what was your first choice? Man, um, I think I'll start with For All We Know by Donny Hathaway. I'll, I'll never be the same and I knew I wouldn't be the first time I heard this song um, after hearing For All We Know. Um, the simple things, even in Donnie's pronunciation, makes the words so much more powerful. And it just made me, I mean, I just spent nights upon night, you know what I'm saying, just dissecting his, his, his delivery. It was so emotional to me. You know, you know here I am, you know, eight, nine, ten, hearing it and and obviously not knowing or being able to relate, you know, on a you know, on a you know personal in a personal way to how Donnie may have felt, you know, and how in love he may have been and all So even though, though they're sort of was, adult feelings. Yeah, but it was just so it was just so real and and, and it was coming from such a real place and, and everything about that song I just it's just such an emotional and dynamic song, you know. It's one of my favorites. And I think that made me decide that I wanted to make other people feel something when they heard my music, you know. And um, it had, had everything to do with my ambition to be a musician. And my heart will be in it. For all we know This may only be a dream So, uh, track two. Queen played Wembley. That It's a 1970s... I don't remember what year it was, but there's... I mean, We Will Rock You is just kind of crazy. Hearing the song, but then seeing it live, seeing him perform, that and obviously like hearing songs like, see, it's kind of a toss up because I wanted to, to bring up a Queen record. But for live performance, I think it was seeing We Will Rock You live from that stage performance. And that entire set, I mean, I mean, you know, Freddie Mercury was just an incredible showman. Um, and he definitely, I think his power and energy and his command on stage and his his how everything was so deliberate and um he really was more of a king on stage you know what i'm saying yeah and there's no sort of irony or archness it's just right. direct it is it is it is he's very he's very powerful and and um you know he was a, he, i mean when you look at him he looked very frail even in the but in the sea, amongst the sea of just people, you know, in the stadium, and he just was commanding their attention, and they were just so in tune. I've always wanted to kind of be able to to command that kind of attention and 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 energy. You know what I'm saying? It's interesting you choose like a, a quite a rock outfit because when you play live, there is that the, the guitars get heavier, the drums are live and pounding. I mean, is that something you you almost drift into pure rock territory? It is. It is. I've I've kind of modeled my performance style around I guess three major influences and and live influences, and those one would be Freddie Mercury. Actually, I would say four between the sheer command of Freddie Mercury, the um, danger of Michael Jackson, the sensuality and musicality of Prince. And then there's something about Bowie's performance style that's all in his face. Mm -hmm. 
he almost told the story in his lyrics and anything allegorical, all the descriptions was so picturesque in his face. You could, he could stand there literally and, and you would feel everything in his performance from his facial expressions. And, and I loved watching that. I think between those, those four musicians, um, I've, I fell in love with their style and, and, when you come to a live show of mine, my performance style is kind of like pulling from those four, you know. Those are the four major influences, I would say. And then, so if there was a track that you, you really look to in terms of your own songwriting and, and sitting down and crafting melodies, who do you kind of look for as a, a real influence there? I would say my vocal, vocal style, I'm pulling from Van Morrison, Prince, Holland Oates, and Marvin. Mm. It's kind of like a, a amalgamation of those. Because, yeah. yeah. I mean, Van Morrison and Hall of Notes, you've got, on the one hand, a very free singer in Morrison who, who maneuvers his way around a sort of circuitous route through a melody and, right. and a song. And then Hall of Notes, it's, it's rhythmically driven. Right. It's tight. Yeah. Uh, how do you find a space between those that, that works? It's so interesting that you said that um, because I think it is it is kind of going in and out of that finding a syncopation that works with the flow of the music and then kind of switching it up at some point and just being very free and mm. kind of letting the melody carry, you know. Um, and I think I love that juxtaposition, that dynamic. It, it, it creates an interesting, it, it's interesting to me um, to listen to and I think I like that. And, and I think that's why those two are, are two of my favorite Vocal, I mean, their their style vocally, you know, is, is one of my favorites. And then when it gets into, like, riffs and runs and things like that, Prince is kind of where I go. And when I'm just kind of, like, laying back and keeping it cool, that's, kind of, like, Prince is kind of a huge influence. And then Marvin for pure, unadulterated sex. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when it's, like, when it's, when it's soul-bearing, you know what I mean? And, and it's not, it's more about, it's more about the weight of the melody, um, and the emotion in the melody. That's who I study. And there's, I noticed there's, in like something like the track Kaleidoscope Dream, you, you have these very um, psychedelic lyrics yeah. and a psychedelic tone to the track. I mean, is psychedelia something you, you listen to? I'm a bit of a hippie to a certain degree. <laughs> um, but I wanted that song to be more picturesque and symbolic of me with my lifestyle. Right. Almost. So it's 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 a talking back and forth with, like, um, I taste you in infinite colors, um, collide in a fountain amidst all the lovers. That's me saying that's the way that I approach life. That's that's kind of what the lyric means, you know. But then you have like these images like body language, like piano keys, which right, is very right, a very surreal image. Right, right. Body language like piano keys um, allow me to provoke, babe. You can sing the melodies. I'll make you sing the melody with every um, different stroke, babe. Um, and as I kiss your third eye, let your love come sweet. Um, only you could be my kaleidoscope. Yeah, yeah. Only you could be my kaleidoscope. And so if you had to choose, say, a quintessential ballad, I guess a love song. A, a pure love song. song. Oh, that's quintessential. It's tough. <laughs> uh, insatiable, a prince. I mean, even just that word is like... <laughs> to never be satisfied, you know what I'm saying? Like, to never be able to get enough, to always want more. There's I a mean, melancholy to that, in there, a, almost. Right, there is, there is. And I think um, I'll always feel like there's more. You know what I mean? There's like, we could do better, or we could be greater, or we could um, love harder. You know what I'm saying? Or we could fight harder, or we could longer. Or, you know what I'm saying? Like I just, I, I'm, I'm all about pushing to the the furthest extent. You know what I mean? I think life should be experienced in in those extremities. I mean, there's. But there's, can there ever be a point at which you are, unlike Prince, uh, sated? I mean, I. As far as self-evolving goes, I think that's a never-ending process. You know mm. what I'm saying? Just growth and and kind of chiseling away at who you are, the things that work, the things that don't. I think in that sense, I'm insatiable. I'm an insatiable human being. 
But I think for for other things, there is you there is a you have to come to terms with things. You know what I'm saying? And um, I guess finding those balances is 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 also part of that chiseling away. You know, finding like, hey, like you know, you shouldn't focus so much on this. Like this is just gonna be what it is, and you got to live with that, and that's okay. But get better here and here and here, or mm. there and there, there. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, And then so finally, at the other end of the spectrum, if it's a Saturday night and you want to just get crazy and dance around, what's the ultimate party track that you would... Party songs. ...that you would go to always? The la- the most recent song that I've heard that's just been like, I'm really about to go in tonight and just really wild out. Um, or it sets the tone. It sets the tone is... Definitely, um, Trinidad James, All Gold Everything. Yeah, which is one of the dumbest tunes ever, it's, in a way. <laughs> I mean, I don't think it's dumb. I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but I think it's like... But it's, yeah, it's certainly not about looking deep into one soul. Right, it's not It's not the most, you know, it doesn't have the most depth. Mm. But, um, hey man, there's a time and place for everything. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I believe that. That was Ben Baymont Thomas talking to Miguel. Next up, it's time for Singles Club. Ethan, let's hear what you've brought in. in a bed with a thousand pounds on her head on a poster on the wall above the light switch That was Marika Hackman mountain spines tell us why you brought that in Ethan I think she's a really interesting artist this girl she's got a very unique turn of phrase melodically and musically chordally she's very unusual and I think her lyrics are really interesting too I think she's a real artist you know she's making the music that's inside her doesn't sound like she's trying to be anything Mm -hmm. she's making the music that is inside her and it's kind of unique is there some kind of dubstep connection there? Because I was, I was Googling her, and I, there's a version of one of her songs that got played on some Future Garage mix right. on the radio, not so long ago. Builders Hackman. So I, I don't know if this is a sideline she does or she's got a relative who does Maybe. this stuff. Maybe. You never know. But, uh, <laughs> That's I, I, so funny. My research was just all folk radio. But I like this. It, it, there's this kind of. All, it's in an odd place, halfway between being a lazy Parisian afternoon in a cafe and late at night somewhere when the alcohol has been consumed. There's these kind of two feelings working at once into this song, which I thought was rather lovely. It does feed back into what we were talking a little bit about earlier and some of the, well, what I was asking is, is your musical heartland? And I, I see Laura Marling in here as well with the, with the fragility of it. But, I mean, it's very, very beautiful. But also, I believe um, she is also a tour partner of yours. She is. Yeah, well, I was looking for someone to open up and uh, I asked her to come because I really want to hear her sing. <laughs> so, yeah, she's opening up for me. Yeah. And um, has, has, she, has she got a deal with anyone or is, is she still... No, I don't think she has. Because no. there are half a dozen tracks or so on SoundCloud, and they yeah. they, they actually really are worth digging out. Um, Kim, what did you make of it? Yeah, I thought, well, it's not 100% my cup of tea. I think that there's definitely something to be said for how comforting and intimate that kind of tradition of this kind of folk music is. Um, and it feel, it does feel very much like you're being let in to you know her stories and, and her worldview. I think that I always enjoy that because that's kind of you know the point of music. 
Uh, I just I kind of wish that her voice was a little bit more powerful. I feel like it's just on the cusp, mm-hmm. and it's it's quite high, but it's not. I don't know. It's not like packing a very powerful punch, and mm-hmm. that's very much to do with kind of my limited knowledge of kind of English folk. My my kind of folk knowledge is very much like. Um, Lavani and Bhangra, which from Punjab in India, which is full of like very shrill, sure. very, yeah, powerful, very powerful female yeah. voices yeah. and lots of drums. Fantastic. And lots of, yeah. So even when I think about folk now, I always think about their kind of like lots of layering and lots of kind of even yep. bass yep. Uh, and lots of very powerful female vocals. Uh, and this just seems very kind of, you know, just one layer of that, you know, just a tiny yeah, bit. So I, um, I like it, but it was it was hard for me to get into. You're, you're not a big one for the somnolent stuff, are you? Kid? Not really, no, no. Like energy, <laughs> I do. like a bit of energy. <laughs> I understand. Well, I've still got this it, Ethan. Yeah, know? rock on. <laughs> um, next up is Michael's choice. was Waiting for Something to Happen by Veronica Falls. Well, first I need to say, I think I've done Veronica Falls a bit of a disservice here because uh, I only found out this morning Alexis was six. I was frantically picking something. I thought, I really love the new Veronica Falls album. Quick, quick, quick. Oh, just send in the title track. And it's nowhere near the best track on the album. Now, if we're talking about musical comfort food, we probably are basically going back to mine here, which is indie pop of the bowl-headed floor tom and snare and a tambourine maybe if you're really going to push the boat out on percussion some jangling guitars and two-part harmonies um this is you know when i was 16 17 this is what i was absolutely immersed in this world now veronica falls this is from their second album their first album which came out a couple of years ago on wichita took those ingredients and kind of meshed them with the cramps it was like this sort of twee gone gothic thing you know songs like found love in a graveyard and beachy head which is about casting yourself to your death off a cliff uh they kind of ditched the gothic element on this album but they've upped their songwriting so far which sadly i don't think you can tell from the song i picked um it's it's kind of full of really unexpected chord changes the album for an indie pop group i mean not for not not for Radiohead. I don't think Radiohead would be thinking there was anything greatly inventive going on there. They've stuck to the core elements of indie pop. So, you know, the guitars still jangle, harmonies are still in that affectless, vibratoless, almost plain song thing that you get at times. But there's a daring about it as well. The opening track nicks from Marky Moon by television, the guitar solo from there. And thinking, for an indie pop group of, of, let's be honest, probably quite limited technical ability. That's such a cheeky thing to do. It's almost laugh out loud when you hear like, the familiar guitar spiral going on, thinking they're never going to pull that off. Um, but I think that the, the real challenge that always faces groups like this is that they, they are more or less condemned to a niche audience. You know, they're never going to break out of indie pop purists. Um, so they can either stand absolutely still and stick with the same crowds of 150 around the country, whatever they do. Um, or they can go the big album route, risk losing the core fan base, and probably not even find a crossover audience. They just become a power pop group by, by default. But they've just made enough changes that you can really feel the group developing on this record, but without actually sacrificing what was at their core. I think it's an incredibly attractive record, though I freely accept not for everyone. And um, I was trying to think over the weekend whether... It may even be the best pure indie pop record yet makes. I can't think of anything from the first time round that, that comes close to it in terms of quality of songwriting. But, I mean, really glorious. A group that I really do think something should happen for. What do you think are some of the best examples of kind of indie pop crossovers? Well, the problem, well you see, a lot of the groups first time round who actually went on to chart success, like The Wedding Present, I was having this argument on Twitter on Sunday. I don't think of them really as that kind of purest indie pop group. They were, they were a rock group who, they didn't dress, it's not that they dressed themselves up in indie pop's clothes. They were associated with that movement because they shared some of the same attitudes and outlooks, but sonically, you know, they were a different kettle of fish. But, I mean, in America, there's plenty of this stuff around at the moment on the Slumberland record label, where there's an incredibly influential group called Black Tambourine, who I find unlistenable in their amateurishness. Uh, so if you think Veronica Falls are amateurish, I tell you, look further afield. Um, 
<laughs> and yeah, it, it, this has been one of the things that's been coming through in Brooklyn for several years now, this indie pop scene. And there's a few groups doing similar stuff. And it's a genre that never dies in this country either. There are mm-hmm. club nights. You know, there's a club night called How Does It Feel To Be Loved that's twice, twice a month. And gets in 250 people just playing the, the songs, you know. Mm-hmm. Right. What okay. did you think of Veronica Falls? Um, I, thought it was, I thought it was very good, mm-hmm. in a word. I, I, I think they're singing honestly. I like the sound of their voices. The song didn't light me lyrically it didn't light me up um perhaps as much as it could there was some night there were some nice nice lyrics in there but a couple of the verses were a little underwritten i thought but um i thought it was really well put together you know nice sound nice feel um felt good all round yeah it was very enjoyable they sound like a group playing to their strengths yeah. this time well, round. Well, this is the thing. It sounds like honest. Mm. It sounds like they're making the music that they mm. want to make, which is really crucial. And I don't know who the producer is on this record. I must look that up. But I think they've done a really fantastic job. And, yeah. they, and presumably they must have had help expanding their palette, I would imagine. Sounds, the sounds are great. The mixes mm. are good. You know, it's nicely put together. They do kind of represent a very sort of cool girl that I sort of wished I was in the 90s even though I was just slightly too young you know I was very much kind of you know into either Spice Girls Pop or Garage and so I remember looking at these kind of girls and and even people like the Cramps and you know and kind of US teen movies and all the girls with guitars and thinking they were incredibly cool but it was very much not my exactly it wasn't really that kind of goth pop indie pop was not my experience at all all, but of course the irony is that groups like this (laughs) always sum themselves as a complete antithesis of cool you know hey no we're (laughs) way removed from cool right. <laughs> so, <untrue. laughs> uh, so yeah I think that they um, even now kind of watching the video back which what you just mentioned them kind of delighting in sort of how grassrootsy it still felt and a little bit rough around the edges it still felt it still felt still has an air of cool even after all that time and I think it works but Kieran are you embracing the jangly guitars no, I hated that. Yeah. Well, though, although when I listened to it, I was just like, God, Michael loves girls with guitars. <laughs> Last time he came, it was like, hey, or something. And you were just like, oh, I do like girls with guitars. <laughs> yeah, it's a great combination. <laughs> um, and lastly is my choice. You That was Cat Power, Manhattan, featuring Angel Hayes, and that was the Ryan Hemsworth remix. Um, That was my choice, and I picked it because I just thought those two female vocals, that pairing of Angel Hayes and Cat Power together was something that I wouldn't necessarily think about, but actually they worked very well on the record. Um, And Angel Hayes has actually opened for Cat Power's uh, New York shows. So this isn't just kind of Ryan Hemsworth, who is a Canadian producer, just kind of pulling these two women together and kind of seemingly disparate voices. They, you know, they have actually got some kind of connection. Uh, And I thought for good reason, really, because it sounded beautiful thought this is like really beautiful thought there was that really like lovely gentle slope I thought the you know the echoes are really well paced I thought the kind of subtle ode to Manhattan was really nice because most of the time when people are singing about Manhattan it's very bolshy and it's in your face and it's kind of not subtle at all but um yeah I thought it worked very well discuss Kieran usually I slightly (laughs) prevaricate over your choices because I appreciate that they're not coming from my comfort zone uh, this I absolutely hated um, not not so much because of what it is but because of what it isn't um, right. I, I'm not a huge Cat Power fan but I think her her original of Manhattan is a, is a really really lovely song mm-hmm. um, and without it conform to the old fashioned Cat Power tropes of Miserable Person with Piano um, it's a really good production the original what you say about the Manhattan, I absolutely get from the original. This combination of melancholy and loneliness, but euphoria as well. And I find that's all removed from this. And all this is is cold surfaces. No. Yeah, it's gleaming chrome and steel and glass. And 
it felt like the interior of the kind of nightclub that I walked past, or the interior of the kind of bar that I walked past with horror, knowing that they don't do real ale on draft. <laughs> Your faded memories, the yeah. glory days. I see. I'm sorry to take you back there, Michael. I'm sorry. <laughs> Ethan, have you got my back or not? Um, I, 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 no, I don't. I, you know, but I will say this. I, I don't like being, I, 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 because I'm basically an old hippie, um, I think anybody making any kind of music primarily is all right by me and I fully understand that taste is thank God we have it because otherwise it'd be pretty boring so I'm always looking for the positive in everything that I listen to I get sent a lot of music and I'm always looking for the positive so I thought it was an interesting collaboration for a start there's a positive there because obviously Cat Power you know um, I don't know what the motivation was behind this remix coming into play mm-hmm. The version I heard, did it have a, a rap yeah. on it? And yeah, is that Angel that, yeah, that's, the, Angel that's rapping? the rapper, so she's kind of a, um, a one-to-watch rapper. I thought she, I thought she uh, acquitted herself pretty well mm-hmm. on that. I, I enjoyed listening to that. I think she's got a nice feel. So that was good. I like the percussion on the track. Mm-hmm. little classical Indian percussion going on in there. I don't know if you heard the... Uh, if you caught, caught that in there, but it's there. Um, it's in my blood, babe. I can there you go. Do. So you maybe even subconsciously, right I don't know. But uh, <laughs> oh, you're so much nicer than Michael is, and he's well, my mate. <laughs> you guys have got a rapport going on, obviously. That's that's well and truly entrenched, and I think it's extremely entertaining. And I wish I could be, you know. Liam Gallagher about uh, it, I, but I can't. It's Ethan, not in me. Ethan, I, I am just, when I come in here, I am the grumpy old man who doesn't understand. I can't tell if they're boys and girls. Can't, can't, I can't hear the melody. I'm like my granddad was with rock and roll records. Yes, I understand. But don't, 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 do you, you know what? And it's great that you're not clinging on to your youth. There would be nothing worse than if you turning around and trying to be hip with the kids, man. There's nothing sadder. <laughs> And that was Singles Club for this week. Thank you. Time for the next in our Hidden Treasures series, where we fly the flag for albums we think are great but didn't get the attention they deserved. This week, it's Casper Lewinan Smith's choice. Riding on the city of New Orleans, Illinois Central, Monday morning. Fifteen cars and fifteen restless riders Three conductors and twenty-five sacks of men Out on the southbound odyssey The train pulls out a can The singer-songwriter Steve Goodman died at the age of 36. That's something that floors me. He was a singer-songwriter from Chicago who suffered from leukaemia for almost all his adult life and died of complications from a bone marrow transplant. That was in 1984. I grew up listening to a lot of his music. I'm not sure exactly which of his LPs my parents had, but I remember the songs. Goodman's probably best known for the city of New Orleans, which Arlo Guthrie turned into a hit, and which Johnny Cash and a bunch of other folks covered. Cash does his usual lugubrious thing, but you really want to check out Goodman's original. It's a song that, in that version, carries with it all the hope of a breaking day, uh, and particularly with its opening line, Good morning, America, how are you? Have a look at the performance on YouTube from the old Grey Whistle Test in 1972, or the version on the eponymous debut album from the year before, which was the year I was born. But there's also a great glut of other great, great Steve Goodman songs. Would you like to learn to dance? You never even call me by my name, the one that got away. Or something like the chicken cordon blues. One of the great things about so much of his work is that it is really funny, and that last song is a classic, the tale of a guy whose girlfriend turns vegetarian, or, as he sings it, when I first met you, baby, you fed me on chicken and wine. It was steak and potatoes and lobster, and babe, I sure felt fine. But now all you ever give me is seaweed and alfalfa sprouts and sunflower seeds, and I got my doubts, and then the payoff. And baby, you left me here with the chicken caught on It's a bit like a Raikuda song with lols, and it's a very 70s vibe. Perhaps it's disingenuous to think about Goodman, or the album that the Chicken Cordon Blues comes from, Somebody Else's Troubles, as a hidden treasure. Fans in his lifetime included the comedian Steve Martin and Chris Christopherson as well. And at a time when Bob Dylan had slipped under the radar for a while and the hunt was on for the new Bob Dylan, 
Well, there he was, supplying backing vocals on the title track from that second album. Dylan features under the alias Robert Milkwood Thomas, crafty bugger. There's also a posthumous biography of Goodman, an 800-page doorstop called Facing the Music by someone called Clay Eels. And if I've ever the time, I'd love to read it. It even features, I gather, the testimony of one Hillary Clinton, who was an old college or schoolmate of Steve's. But in his lifetime, Goodman never got the success he deserved, and in the UK, at least, he seems a pretty much completely forgotten figure. Given the shortness of his life, he was pretty prolific, 11 albums in total. And when I was a kid, the fact that he died so young, after living with the shadow of death for so long, didn't really touch me. But to think that he wrote all those records of such warmth and humanity within that time span is something I find very moving now. Perhaps the most touching song on Somebody Else's Troubles is The Dutchman, which, unusually, Goodman didn't write himself. It's by Michael Peter Smith, another singer-songwriter from Chicago. But to get a sense of Goodman's spirit, listen first to Somebody Else's Troubles, the song itself. The final verse is really something else. Goodman asking an undertaker what it takes to make him laugh when all he sees is people crying. And first he hands me a bunch of flowers that he'd received on my behalf. He said, Steve, business just gets better all the time. And then there's the chorus when he sings that as long as fate is out there bursting somebody else's bubbles, everything is going to be all right. So I'm sure it's been said before, but Steve Goodman, he was the one that got away. flowers that he'd received on my behalf said steve business just gets better all the time and it ain't too hard to get along with somebody else's troubles and they don't make you lose any sleep at night just as long as fate is out there buzzing. that was casper llewellyn smith's hidden treasure you'll find more on the series online at guardian.co.uk forward slash music that's it for this week. Thank you so much, Ethan, for joining us. Thank you, us. it was a pleasure. Oh, it's so nice. Lots of laughs. Going. It's good. We'll be back in a week, hopefully with Alexis. Uh, you can have your say at guardian.co.uk forward slash musicweekly. Bye. For more great downloads, go to guardian.co.uk forward slash audio.